You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Well, good morning, church family. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 90, the 90th Psalm this morning. Believe it or not, tomorrow marks the beginning of a new calendar year. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, or perhaps if you stay up till midnight tonight, at that moment, 2023 will literally be history. Another year has passed, and it's time that we'll never get back. Literally, history. And a new year is about to begin, and so this time of year affords us the opportunity to reflect upon our lives, to consider all that has taken place and transpired over the previous year and resolve to make any necessary or appropriate changes to the way that we live. And so as we reflect upon the past 12 months, I want to give you a few diagnostic questions to consider. How did you steward your time this past year? Did you make the best use of your time? Did you seek to live each day mindful of the reality that your days are numbered? Do you have any regrets in how you prioritized your time and your activities? How about this? If you were to tally up all of the hours that you spent engaging in various activities in life, what would their totals be? How many hours did you spend in God's word this past year? You're to tally them all up. How many hours did you spend in prayer? How many hours did you spend browsing social media or scrolling through Facebook or Instagram reels? How many hours did you spend playing video games or watching TV or YouTube or Netflix? How many hours did you spend showing hospitality to others or intentionally discipling your children? Worshiping the Lord with your family or worshiping the Lord with your church? How many hours did you spend evangelizing the lost or serving in the body of Christ or working hard at your job or investing in your marriage? These questions all matter because how we steward our time reveals what matters most to us. We may say that we value Christ more than anything else, but perhaps the way that we steward our time reveals otherwise. And sooner than most of us realize, our time on earth will be up. Every year that passes by is a year closer to death. It's precious, it's invaluable time that we'll never get back. And so how we steward it then is of the utmost importance. It matters deeply. As the famous line from C.T. Studd's poem puts it, maybe you're familiar with this poem, you can look it up, it's a wonderful poem, but the refrain says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Do you resolve to live each day and each week and each month and each year of your life as, as though those words are true? That only what's done for Christ will truly last. Psalm 90, the psalm before us this morning, is a psalm that speaks to the brevity and the transience of human life. It's a psalm, then, that's often read at funerals. 
because of its focus on the inescapable reality of death and the frailty of mankind. And if we're honest, death is a topic that many of us avoid thinking about. So when a loved one dies, we go to the funeral to mourn their death. But how many so quickly try to move on after the funeral's done to life as normal as quickly as they can and stop thinking about death until they have to again with the next funeral? And yet Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, to paraphrase, it's better to go to a funeral service than to go to a wedding ceremony. And that's kind of counterintuitive at first, isn't it? Why would it be better to go to anyone's funeral, that means someone has died, than it would, it would be to go to a wedding celebration where God is joyfully bringing together a new happy couple? Well, the answer to that question is found in Psalm 90. And so on the cusp of this new year, we're going to look at and focus upon a rather sobering passage of Scripture. And though this passage confronts us with our own mortality and our own sinfulness and the brevity of our lives, I'll let you know that this is not a passage without hope or instruction. We will see that the man who regularly contemplates his own death is the man who gains a heart of wisdom. The man who lives each day mindful of how few days he has left is a man that will then steward his time wisely. And more than that, though, as we study this psalm, we will see that each and every problem that we are confronted with in this passage is gloriously addressed and solved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has purchased us forgiveness of sins and eternal life for those who believe in him. And so let me read Psalm 92 now, and then I'll pray, and we'll continue to look at it. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us, yes, 
establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Thank you that we can read it and hear it read this morning. Pray that you would fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, that your word would go forth in power, that the lost might be saved and the saved might be sanctified, and above all else, that Christ may be brought much glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You'll see the title above Psalm 90. It says, Book 4. And so the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five books of Psalms. And Psalm 90 is the first Psalm in Book 4. And it comes on the heels of Book 3, which is a book that has Psalms that tend to focus on the Babylonian exile. This Psalm, Psalm 90, is the only Psalm attributed to Moses. And so he likely wrote it during the wilderness wanderings in the desert with the Israelites when they had no physical dwelling place and no human earthly king. And yet, despite it being written so many centuries earlier, it is compiled and it is set right after book three at the beginning of book four and notably after Psalm 89, which is a psalm that directly talks about the Babylonian exile. Also a time where God's people had no earthly home, no place to dwell in, and no earthly human king. And so not only would these words have served as a corporate lament during the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, but also during the Babylonian exile. Psalm 90 has elements of both a lament psalm and a wisdom psalm, but many would categorize it as a lament psalm because that seems to be the prevailing mood of the psalm. The psalmist is crying out to the Lord in lament over these very various realities that he'll discuss. As I already mentioned, this is a psalm that speaks of the brevity and the frailty of human life and the inescapable reality of death. And so as we break it down together, we're going to do so under three headings. Number one, the transcendence of God and the transience of man. Number two, the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man. And number three, the grace of God and the plea of the psalmist. So first heading, first thing we'll consider. Number one, the transcendence of God and the transience of man. Before the lament begins, though, we have this wonderful truth that we're reminded of in verse one. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember, this is written likely when they're wandering around in the desert without a physical home. And notice the word our here, that encouraging little word. This transcendent, eternal God has been the personal dwelling place of his people. Moses doesn't say that our dwelling place is in Egypt or that it's in the wilderness of Sinai or that it's in Babylon. Certainly our dwelling place is not even in the promised land. Ultimately, our dwelling place is in God himself. And it always has been. From the time of Moses to the Babylonian exile to now, God is our dwelling place. What does that mean though? Well, it means that he is our refuge, that he is our shelter, that he's our strong tower in the storms of life. He's our protection as the people of God. It means that he's our hiding place in times of trouble, as it says elsewhere, that he's a place of rest and comfort for his people. 
Bible says that in him we live and we move and we have our being. And uh, I want to read for you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's a lengthy quote, but he's reflecting upon this first verse, and I found this very encouraging. He writes, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in their God and have always done so in all the ages. Not in the tabernacle or the temple do we dwell, but in God himself. And this we have always done since there was a church in the world. We have not shifted our abode. King's palaces have vanished beneath the crumbling hand of time. They have been burned with fire and buried beneath mountains of ruins. But the imperial race of heaven has never lost its regal habitation. Go to the Palatine and see how the Caesars are forgotten of the halls which echoed to their despotic mandates, and resounded with the plaudits of the nations over which they ruled. And then look upward and see in the ever-living Jehovah the divine home of the faithful, untouched by so much as the finger of decay. Where dwelt our fathers a hundred generations since, there dwell we still. So Christian, don't forget this important truth this morning at the outset of this psalm, that God is your home, that he is your dwelling place, that he is your refuge through all that life entails. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There really is nothing more enduring and immovable in all of creation than a mountain. My wife and I, along with some of you in the church, had the privilege of going to Calgary for Tim Stevens' conference back in October of this year. And my wife and I had the wonderful treat of spending a day in the Rocky Mountains. And it really is a breathtaking experience. Like, we don't have anything that compares to that in Ontario. Blue Mountain's not even a mountain. Chicopee is like a molehill. But then you go to a place like Alberta and you see these glorious mountains. You're driving along the highway out of Calgary and it starts off as a flat rural plain. And then eventually on the horizon, these large mountains, these large rock formations start to pop up. And you begin to drive through them and there's one after another, seemingly never ending. We visited Lake Louise and we hiked up one of the mountains there and as you climb the mountain and you get higher and higher and you take in the views, there really is something almost transcendent about that experience. It's a reminder of just how small you are. It's a wonderful privilege if you've ever had the opportunity to see a large mountain or to even climb it. And it gives you this sense of timelessness and transcendence, this mountain that's there before you and will be there after you. And yet the psalmist says here that God precedes even the mountains. That he was there before they were brought forth and that he'll outlive and he'll outlast every single one of them. That he formed the, before he formed the earth and before he formed the world and before he spoke the universe into existence and breathed out galaxies in the beginning was God. Indeed, the Lord precedes even time itself. God always was, he always is, and he always will be. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is truly transcendent in every definition of the word. 
It was the German philosopher and anti-Christian atheist Friedrich Nietzsche that coined the phrase, God is dead. And this was a phrase he loved and he used over and over again in his works. Interestingly, though, despite so many scholarly achievements and notable works at a young age, Nietzsche suffered a total mental breakdown at the age of 44 in 1889, which led to a complete loss of his mental faculties. He would spend the next 11 years of his life suffering from paralysis and dementia, only to die at the age of 55. And so Nietzsche then has been dead for over 100 years. But not God. Our God remains, and he will continue to outlive and outlast every single one of his critics, because from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And the reality is our finite human minds can barely begin to comprehend just what that means. As we think about the concept of eternity, we can't wrap our minds around it, because we've always been bound and constricted by time. That ever-flowing stream, as Isaac Watts said. We cannot begin to imagine an existence outside of time because all we've known is an existence inside of time. And yet that is God. God is one who has no beginning of days and no end of life. And this can only be said of Him. He and He alone is God. He and He alone is truly transcendent, is truly from everlasting to everlasting. There is none like Him. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. We learn here that God is not only eternal, he's not only sovereign over creation, but he's also sovereign over death. He formed us from dust, so it's his prerogative to return us to dust whenever he so pleases to do so. In other words, he decides how long that we live. This verse, of course, is an echo of what God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.19 when he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so let's just compare and contrast what it's saying about God in verse 2 and what the psalmist is saying about us in verse 3. If God is from everlasting to everlasting, that's God, then we are from dust to dust. That's how big the chasm is between us and God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. We are from dust to dust. And I can't think of anything more insignificant than dust. And one day, according to this verse, God will say to each and every one of us, Return, O child of man. And when he says that, we will breathe our last we will die, and we will return to dust. And this is the end that awaits all of mankind, every single person in this room. And so until that day, each and every breath in our lungs is a gift from God. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Okay, when you're a being who is outside of time, when you're an eternal being, there really isn't much of a difference between a thousand years or a day. It's all relative. Okay? Compared to eternity, a thousand years is like a drop in the ocean. It's like a grain on a seashore. It's nothing. It's, it's neg negligible. 
A watch in the night, as it says there in verse 4, is about three hours long. And so the psalmist is essentially saying that even if someone could live to the age of Methuselah, right, which was just shy of a thousand years old, that's nothing. That's like three hours. It's a blink of an eye to God. Big deal. It's a flash in the pan. Verses 5 to 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Again here, this speaks to the brevity and the frailty of human life and how fleeting time is. The psalmist uses three metaphors. First, history is like a flood, constantly rushing and sweeping the years away, and just like that, they're gone and there's no getting them back. Or consider a dream, the psalmist says. There are a few things more short and fleeting than a dream. Okay, how many times have you woken up after a good night of sleep and you have a faint memory of a dream that you just had? But then within minutes, you forgot what the dream was about. It's completely lost and you can't remember a thing. I've had this all the time. I have a dream. I kind of remember when I wake up. I go downstairs. I want to talk to Aaron about it. I completely forgot what my dream was about. You wonder if you even had a dream because that's how fleeting it was. That's what the years of our life is like, the psalmist says. It's like a dream. Finally, the psalmist compares our lives to grass. And you have to remember, his context is the wilderness of Sinai. The grass appears renewed in the morning, but over the course of the day in the scorching hot sun, it fades and it withers by the evening. And this metaphor speaks to me. I've realized how frail a blade of grass is. I don't have a green thumb by any stretch of the imagination, but something that I've desired and worked hard toward is a luscious, green, thick lawn. As a kid, I could care less, but it's interesting. You hit an age and and green grass matters to you. (laughs) I've come to realize, though, that working toward this with four little children and a female dog is a fool's errand. It's not going to happen. But this past summer, I, I have to say that the lawn was looking pretty good, especially in the backyard. But a few months later, it looks pathetic again. And maybe it'll bounce back in the spring, I don't know. But right now, it's yellowy, it's withered, and it's muddy. And you would think, I have no idea what I'm doing with my lawn. This is what our lives are like, the psalmist says. For a short time, we seem to flourish. And then we wither. And we die. And this is a theme that's repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures. God wants us to be ever mindful of our own mortality and transience. And perhaps because we're so prone to kind of put it to the back of our mind and not think about it as often as we ought, it's repeated again and again and again in the scriptures. And so here's a small sampling. James 4.14 says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Psalm 39, verses 4 to 5 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So breathe in air, breathe out air. That's like your life. One breath. 
1 Peter 1, 24-25 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And one more, Psalm 103, 15-16 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. This is the experience, this is the reality, this is the end of all mankind. We're here for a short time and then we die. And as we're confronted with this sobering reality in Psalm 90 this morning, all of this begs the question, why? Why is it this way? Why are our lives so fleeting? Despite the vain attempts of some to try and extend their life, through cryogenic freezing or transhumanism or any other of that nonsense? Why is death such a certain and inescapable reality for all mankind? And this, of course, is one of life's big questions. Atheists cannot answer this question, by the way. They can hypothesize about death all they want, but they don't ultimately know why we die. They can't give a definitive answer. Only the Christian can. And the answer is found in the next few verses of this psalm. And so that brings me to my second heading this morning. We've seen the transcendence of God and the transience of man. Now we'll look at the anger of God and the sinfulness of man. Simply put, we die because of our sin. And because of the perfect, holy, righteous wrath of God. Verses 7 to 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so we go now. We shift from considering the eternity of God to now considering his anger. According to verse 7, it's God's anger that brings us to an end. By his wrath we are dismayed. The NIV says we are terrified of his wrath. And his anger, we learn, is not without cause. His anger toward mankind is not because he's just some angry God that likes to be angry. So why is his wrath revealed against mankind? What is the cause? Well, he is angry because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Every last one of us have sinned. We've done things that we ought not to have done and we know it. We've not done things that we ought to have done. Thereby transgressing the law of God. We are lawbreakers. And every last one of our sins are set before God. They're all exposed in the holy light of his presence. Our sins done in the open for people to see and our sins done behind closed doors in private. It's all there in the holy light of his presence. Even the sins deep within the recesses of our hearts. Sinful thoughts and desires that you've had throughout your life that no one else knows about. God does, and it's all there. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And he has set every last sinful action and word and thought and desire before him. It's all there. You didn't get away with anything. One commentator said that secret sins in verse 8 would even include those secret from ourselves. We're so sinful and depraved that we've committed countless sins we're not even aware of. 
But God's aware of every last one, and it's all there, and it's all exposed in the light of his presence. And so apart from Christ, we have no plea. We have no excuse. We're guilty sinners, and we know it. This, then, is why we die. This is the explanation for the brevity of human life. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.23 simply puts it this way. The wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you earn. So what we earn for the sin we've committed is death. Death is not a debt that we owe to nature. Death is a debt that we owe to God because we've sinned against him. And the wrath that is due each and every one of us for our sin is unimaginable. In fact, the wrath of God is so great and so terrifying and so powerful that we, in and of ourselves, could never quench it. We could never satisfy it. And so our sin against an everlasting, eternal God warrants everlasting, eternal punishment. This is what you and I deserve, to be punished forevermore, never able to fully satisfy the wrath of God. And so that is why every breath in our lungs is a gift from God. Every year of life, despite how short it may seem, it's all a gift of God. We deserve far less. Verse 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Again, we're reminded here of the frailty of our lives due to sin. And when you're young, the number of 70 or 80 years, it seems like an eternity, doesn't it? When you're 5 or you're 10 or maybe even in your teenage years, 70 or 80, that just seems so far off. Why even think about it? You have so much life to live. But then as we get older and each year begins to go by quicker than the last and they start to pile up one after another, suddenly we start to realize that life isn't as long as we once thought it to be. If the years of my life are 70, as it says in verse 10, I've already passed the halfway mark. Okay, if that's the case, that means I'm closer to my death than I am to my birth. Which is a strange thing to think about. To be perfectly honest with you, it's, it's odd to think about. In 2024, my oldest child will turn 10. Double digits. I have no idea where the last decade of my life went. Went by like that. Before I know it, she'll be 20. I find it interesting that virtually everyone agrees with the phrase, life is short. Have you ever met anyone that tried to argue that life is long? Everyone agrees with that phrase, life is short, but this is kind of peculiar when you think about it for a moment. Richard Dawkins, who's another famous atheist, he tweeted several years ago, I am an atheist because life is too short to waste it preparing for an afterlife. I'd rather live life now. It's not a very profound tweet. I mean, there's much to be concerned about that we could dissect, but I find it pretty fascinating that he admits that life is short. Why? What is it short with respect to? 
A male mosquito lives for 10 days. Okay, so with respect to that, 70 to 80 years is pretty good. A tiger lives about 14 years. So again, 70 to 80 years, it's not too bad. A gorilla lives to about 35 years. So most of us will have twice the lifespan of a gorilla. And so if you're comparing our lives to the rest of God's creatures, we have it pretty good. It's actually pretty long. And so why do we say that life is short? Why does no one typically argue against that claim? It's because we all long for transcendence. It's because we cannot come to terms with the reality of death and the transience of life. It's because according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, including Richard Dawkins. And so life is short. With respect to eternity, 70 to 80 years is the blink of an eye. And the psalmist says here that 70 to 80 years lived apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ are years that are just full of toil and trouble under God's wrath. How's that for an existence? A miserable, frustrating existence that is soon gone and then we fly away. Finally, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The NIV says it this way, if only we knew the power of your anger. There are so few, even Christians, that consider God's anger as we ought to. And the psalmist even says none of us can fully comprehend it. Those who treat sin flippantly and who mock the righteous clearly do not know the power of God's anger. For if they did, they would want nothing to do with sin. They'd want to kill sin in their own lives and help others kill sin and have nothing to do with it because they don't want to be under the wrath of God. If you're trying to kill sin in your life, perhaps you ought to contemplate and reflect upon the anger of God more than you do. And so this psalm has confronted us with some pretty terrible realities. The reality of our own sin, the imminence of our own death, and the unimaginable, unknowable, unquenchable wrath of God. These are three serious problems that every man and woman on this planet must come to terms with. And they are three problems that none of us can solve. None of us can solve these problems. Which brings us to my final heading this morning, number three. The grace of God and the plea of the psalmist. The grace of God and the plea of the psalmist. After this lament in the final six verses of this psalm, Moses makes his plea, his request to the Lord. In light of these dreadful realities, he petitions God's throne of grace. And I think his plea, I think his prayer here would make for a wonderful prayer for each of us in the year ahead. Something to pray through. And so let's begin with verse 12. Psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I think this is really the theme or the main verse in this psalm, the main point. That we ought to be ever aware of our frailty and our finitude as Christians, as men and women. We learn from verse 12 that a wise man is a man who thinks about death. A wise Christian seeks to be ever mindful of how fleeting they are. So that they can then live accordingly. 
They seek to make the best use of their time, as it says in Ephesians 5. And verse 12 here, I think, should be taken literally. It encourages us to number our days. And so I did some math in preparation for this sermon. I did some holy arithmetic, if you will. The average male in Ontario lives for 80 years, pretty much right on point, which is, uh, which is right there in verse 10, consistent with verse 10. And so I'm almost 36. So that means if I live to 80, I have approximately 44 years left, which is about 16,000 days. That's really not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Every night I go to bed and I wake up in the morning, there's a day off of that counter. And that number is going down. If you're 50 years old and you live to the age of 80, that means you have about 10,950 days left. If you are 65 years old, you've got 5,475 days left. And if you're 85, <laughs> well, that means you're on borrowed time. Okay? The game's in overtime. You're in extra innings. I say that respectfully to, to those much older than me. And perhaps it's uncomfortable to think, to think along these lines and to number our days, but here we learn it's actually biblical because it's a pathway to wisdom. Numbering our days will force us to rightly prioritize and organize and value our time and the activities of our lives. Okay, if... For, here's how this works. If we're regularly thinking about how few days we have left, then perhaps it's not so urgent that we go and see that new movie in the theater, that we buy that new video game system, or that we sign up for the latest social networking app. Perhaps those things aren't as important as we thought they were. Perhaps the snooze button on our alarm clocks becomes less used. Perhaps our Bibles become more worn out, and our prayer closets less dusty. Numbering our days produces a heart that is in step with God's purpose for our lives and that urgently seeks to do everything according to God's will. It brings urgency to how we raise our children and how we disciple others and how we evangelize lost loved ones. How could it not bring urgency to that? And how we take dominion in our jobs for the glory of God. We don't have a lot of time left, so we need to get to it. We need to use it wisely. There's no time to waste. Verses 13 to 14. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's interesting, in verse 13, this is the first time in the psalm where the covenant name Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is used. So Moses, after his lament, he's now appealing to the covenantal love of God. Because he has no other plea. To return in verse 13 means to relent. To relent from being angry. To turn away anger. And the word for pity in verse 13 can be translated compassion. So Moses here is begging the Lord to turn away his anger and to instead show him and his people compassion and mercy. In verse 14 he asks the Lord to satisfy him with his steadfast love. So that he can be joyful and glad the rest of his days. It seems that there are really two options presented for us in this psalm. 
two options for how we can live our lives. Either, option one, you can live your life under the persistent wrath of God and have days that are filled with trouble and toil and sorrow, or you can live your life under the love of God and have days full of rejoicing and gladness, not without hardship, but with joy in the midst of them. Which would you rather? Would you rather live under the wrath of God and have sorrow, or would you rather live under the steadfast love of God and have joy? The question is how? How can we go from being under his wrath to being under his love? How can the problem of sin and the problem of death and the problem of God's anger ever be solved? How could God ever show dust like us compassion and mercy? How could we ever be satisfied by his love when we stand as guilty sinners before him? Okay, and even if we, all we had was verse 1, how could verse 1 be true? How could a sinful people dwell with a holy God? How could it be said that he's our dwelling place? God is infinite and we are finite. He, is, he hates sin and we are sinners. And yet it says that he is the dwelling place of his people. How? How can this be true? And the answer to all of these questions is that it's only true by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way. All of the problems presented to us thus far in this psalm is solved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, what did he do? He came to dwell with his people. We could not dwell with him, so he came to dwell with us. He tabernacled among us. He lived a righteous life under the law, a life completely free from iniquity and sin and secret sin. Only to then die on the cross where his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sinners. The Bible says that on that cross, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. And that's an important word considering what we've studied thus far in this psalm. That word propitiation means to satisfy and to turn away wrath. It means that God poured out his wrath toward the sins of his people on Jesus instead of his people, thereby turning his wrath away from them and toward Jesus. And then after satisfying the wrath of God, Jesus rose three days later, conquering death. Why? So that he could give all of his people eternal life. And so through his work and life and death, he solved all of these problems. Jesus deals with the reality of death and the brevity of human life by offering us eternal life. He deals with the depths of our depravity and sinfulness by offering us forgiveness for sin. And he deals with the wrath of God by taking it upon himself and turning it away from his people. God has indeed answered this prayer and had pity upon his people. He will indeed satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love so that Though our days left are relatively few, they may be filled with joy and with gladness in the Lord. As verse 15 says, we may be glad for as many days as we were sorrowful and afflicted. But these realities are only true in Jesus Christ. It is only by grace through faith in him. That's it. There's no other way. And so is that you? Do you believe do you have faith in Jesus? Have you confessed your sins to the Lord and cried out to him for mercy and forgiveness and salvation? 
Have you called upon his name and be saved? If not, then why not? It is absolutely futile to try and hide and cover your sin from God. Or to try and live your life as though God's wrath isn't directed towards you. It won't work. If you try and live this way, the guilt of your sin will only grow and grow and grow with age. And it will have a more and more crushing effect upon your soul. Lead to more and more misery. And you may seek to numb the pain with substances or vices or whatever. But it won't work. It'll just add to the crushing guilt. And one day your short life will come to an end. And after that will come the judgment, the Bible says, where every last one of your sins will be laid out and judged accordingly. And then you'll be thrown into the fires of hell forevermore. And by then it will be far too late. And that day is coming sooner than you think. It could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. What a miserable path to choose for your life and for your eternity. Why not come to Jesus this morning? Why not turn from your sin and embrace him by faith and receive the forgiveness of sins and begin the rest of your life in the steadfast love of God? That's available to you as a free gift this morning if you would receive it by faith. And for those of you who are in Christ, every day when you wake up, remember that you wake up as one who has been saved from the wrath of God. You wake up as one who has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and as one who will not perish because you've been given eternal life. And so even if your days left are few, don't be dismayed. But rejoice in this glorious grace and mercy that God has shown you in Christ. And remember that even when you leave this world, the Bible says that it is far better to go and be with the Lord Jesus than to remain here. And so death now becomes gain for the Christian. Our longing for eternity has been satisfied in Christ. And after the psalmist cries here for mercy and grace, he finishes up this psalm by asking for the Lord's glory and blessing and favor to be upon him and to be upon the people of God as they seek to steward their time for his glory. Look at verses 16 to 17. He says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalmist doesn't just want joy and gladness. He wants to see God's glory and power be put on display. He wants his children to see it as well. He wants to see the Lord do great things among his people during his short time on earth. These final couple of verses aren't just a, a reminder that we don't just need grace for salvation, but we need grace every day of our lives. If anything of eternal value is to be accomplished, if our short lives are to count for the kingdom of God, then God must show us his favor. We cannot manufacture spiritual blessing. And so as we all hopefully seek to work toward this great end of advancing God's kingdom and making disciples... As we do so, we must regularly beg the Lord for his favor to be upon us. Beg him to establish the work of our hands. Because there's no other way. And so this is why we regularly pray every Sunday and at prayer meetings for the Lord to go before us and allow us and open doors to allow us to plant a church. Because if he will not go before us and he will not bless that work, we may as well not even do it. 
This is why we're praying that the Lord would show us favor as we seek to expand our property and grow our capacity for discipleship. Because if the Lord will not go with us, if he will not show us his favor, then it's all for naught. It's all vain. Nothing of eternal value will be produced or accomplished because we need his favor and we need his blessing. We don't deserve it. It's grace, and so we must ask him for it as we endeavor to steward our time for his kingdom and for his gospel. And so in closing, on the cusp of a new year, as we all reflect upon the passing of time and the brevity of life, if you're like me, maybe you find sometimes that it's hard not to be nostalgic. Think about the passing of time or just to look out at the world and what it's becoming and want to go back to a simpler time or to a year in which you had more time yet ahead of you. But even as feelings of nostalgia in and of themselves I don't think are necessarily sinful, we must discipline ourselves to quickly move on from those feelings and to look forward to what lies ahead. Spurgeon said, we have not enough time at our disposal to justify us in misspending a single quarter of an hour. And so what do we do then as we look ahead to the time that we have left? How do we live according to the wisdom of this psalm in this new year ahead, for example? Well, this psalm teaches us to cling to the Lord as our dwelling, our dwelling place and our refuge through all that is to come. Whatever this next year of life holds, cling to the Lord through the storms it may bring. We rejoice in his saving grace and we rely upon his new morning mercies each and every day to get us through whatever tomorrow holds. And then we ask the Lord to teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom so that we can wisely order the time that we have left and live life with a sense of urgency as we seek to evangelize the lost and make disciples and further his kingdom. And as we seek to do these things and steward our time wisely, we beg the Lord to establish our work and to show us his favor. Because if he doesn't, it will all be for naught. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning and pray that you would help us to all not be hearers of your word, but not only hearers of your word, but doers also. May you apply the truth of your word to our hearts. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, we pray. Pray for the lost in our midst who are still under your wrath. Lord, would you give them the second birth this morning? Would you turn their hearts to the Savior for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life? Lord, and would you help the rest of us to steward our time wisely and for your glory. Show us your favor and establish the work of our hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.